We're going to do our best to get through what we can here this morning, but we're not going to get to all of it. So if you leave with questions, uh, there's nothing I can do, uh, but I welcome, of course, your questions at any time. I'm glad to have that conversation when we get back. Well, uh, as we take a look at this passage, I was reminded that just about every Monday, I do the shopping for our family. Monday is, is the day that uh, I can protect and, and take off, because often Saturday is needed for work, and Tuesday through uh, Friday are needed for work, and Sunday, of course, we're here. These are all good things, but Monday is the day where I can say I can get a few things done. And I wander with purpose. I don't know if you can wander with purpose, but I do, through store after store, picking out the food and household items we'll need for the week, replenishing our supplies of vegetables and meat and detergent and toilet paper and whatever else we need. It's very glamorous what I do. And once I've got everything, I walk up to the checkout line. Now you've been to the checkout line, right? And especially, uh, you know, the, the stores I go to, Save Mart, I get the fewest number of things because it's the most expensive. And the bulk of my shopping gets done at Winco. And if you know something about Winco, you know you're going to spend some time in the checkout line. And when you get there, uh, of course, they've, they've got displays next to you, right? Remember these? And, and you got all kinds of impulse buys all over those displays. You've got your, your sodas, and you've got candy, and you've got batteries. You know, you've got all of these things that maybe you forgot, or maybe you didn't forget, but you were trying to forget because you need another candy bar like you need another inch on your waist. That is, you don't need it at all, but it's there, and it's calling to you. But I left out one thing, didn't I? What else is always at the checkout Magazines, right? The magazines. And the magazines are the most colorful thing. I don't know about you, but when I get to the checkout line, what catches my eye is the magazines. Now, I don't have a, a problem with magazines. I think magazines are great. There's several that I like to page through and read periodically, and I've had magazine subscriptions at different times in my life, and if you're any younger than me, you don't know what a magazine subscription is. But as I was studying Revelation 17 this week, I realized that a magazine cover is probably the perfect description for what John sees in the wilderness. Because what do you see on a magazine cover? Well, you see a perfect-looking person, don't you? Like a celebrity of some, store, some, some sort. And the headline is telling you something about their perfect life, or maybe about how their life wasn't perfect, but now it is perfect, right? You, you never read the magazine article, uh, or you never see the headline in the magazine that says, everything is terrible and I'm going to hell doesn't happen. It's always the, the story that draws you in. Ooh, I want to learn how to lose 15 pounds in a month. That sounds great, right? I, ooh, look how that's a beautiful person. I wouldn't mind having that magazine sitting on my coffee table to brighten my day at some point. Or you might be thinking, ooh, look at how wonderful that house looks. I look, I wish that my house looked like that. Now, I've noticed, I just need to throw in something for the gentleman here, right? Or, oh, man, that shotgun really looks like something I'd like to add to my collection. They don't put those in, in the checkout line for some reason. I'm not sure why that is. But, you know, the, the magazine cover always draws you in. It makes you think, oh, I wish my life was like I wish my house was like that. I wish my story was like that. I wish I had that gun in my gun collection. Whatever it is, it draws you in. 
And I don't know if you picked up, but it, it, let me remind you of what John saw again for, for just a moment. It says, the angel carried me away into the spirit, into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. And you're, if you're following along right now, you should probably be thinking, that doesn't sound like a good thing. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Well, that sounds pretty good. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Well, maybe not so great. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled. Did you, did you catch that in your first reading? John sees Babylon the Great, exemplified by a woman who is a prostitute, riding a scary beast, dressed a, just impeccably, wonderfully, spectacularly with a wine cup full of abominations and sexual immorality. And John marvels. He admires her. I really think that's what's happening there. John admires the woman in the vision. And I, I, I believe this in part because it says, when I saw her, you know, I, I marveled. I found maso in, in Greek. And then the angel said to me, why are you marveling? Why are you marveling? See, John sees Babylon, and he sees something he desires. And if John looks at Babylon, if the apostle looks at Babylon and sees something he desires, I think that we need to understand that when we see what Babylon is picturing in our world today, we also see something we desire, and we need someone to say, why are you marveling? We need someone to break the spell. Let me tell you a little bit about what Babylon represents here. We've talked a little bit about Babylon in last week and in weeks prior. Uh, Babylon, that name appears six times in the book of Revelation, but it never actually uh, clearly explains this is what it means. It is a picture, an image, a symbol, which we need to use context clues to understand. So first, let me tell you something. Babylon... Uh, Babylon represents power, first of all. If you caught, the, where is, what, what is the posture of this woman who's described as a prostitute? What is the posture of, of Babylon? She's sitting, and she's sitting on the beast. Right? Now, this is the beast we encountered several chapters ago, uh, the, the beast that takes political power and that exercises it throughout the earth. And Babylon is sitting on this beast. And, and when, when people sit in the book of Revelation, it usually has to do with a throne. And I think that's how we need to understand this here. For example, Christ is seated in heaven because he is enthroned as king earlier in the book. Uh, and here, the woman is seated on the beast. She is enthroned on the beast. And we know that the, the beast in Revelation actually holds great power to make the world work the way it desires. 
This is the political power of the world that is married with the agenda of Satan. This is power and authority that Satan delegates and gives, and he has given it to this woman called Babylon. She is enthroned upon it. And power is something that we all desire in one way, shape, or form. Now, I know most of us, you know, we look at, we look at politics in our country right now, and most of us think we need different people in power, Right? We need somebody who will, who will have integrity, who will do the things that really matter, and, and not just give in to the special interests all the time. We, th- we keep thinking about this, and then the next thing we think is, and it's not me, because I have no interest in going through what you have to go through to have power in this world. But that's only, that's only the, sort of the curtains that are drawn over the truth for us, because the truth is, we do want power in our lives. Right? We want the power to say what comes next in our lives. You ever been faced with a big decision and some of that decision is outside of your control? Right? Maybe you're interviewing for a job and it's the job that you really want, but you recognize that you're, you're interviewing against other people who want the same job and that there is an employer who gets to choose who gets that job. And what you want in that moment is the power to be able to make the decision for your employer. Say, this is what's going to happen here. We want power in our lives. We may not want it in every context, but we still want the power to have our yes be yes and our no be no to the things we want to say yes to in life and things we want to say no to. John looks at Babylon, the great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth, and he thinks, I want her power, just like you and I do. And what's God calling John and the Christians to do instead? All throughout the book, we've been saying this over and over and over again. Be faithful even unto death. Does that sound like power? It's okay to say no. That's the answer I'm looking for. I'd appreciate it if you would say no. No, that doesn't sound like power, does it? Thank you, Diane. God bless you. No. So John marvels. John looks at Babylon's wealth. Babylon is, uh, the woman is clothed in purple and in scarlet. That doesn't mean a lot to, I see some of you out there right now, you're wearing purple. I don't know if we got any scarlet. That's a pretty specific color, but, but it's no big deal for us, right? We just go, we buy whatever color clothes we want. But it wasn't that way in the ancient world. The most expensive dyes in the ancient world were purple and scarlet, And so you know who wore them? The rich people, the wealthy and the... If you wanted to know who was rich, it wasn't just the cut of somebody's clothes that you could look at. I know, um, so, you know, men, of course, our fancy clothes are suits. And you can tell who's bought a suit off the rack versus who has has bought a suit from a tailor, right? Because one of them fits really well, and the other one's kind of hanging here and there and a little bit too tight over here. But in the ancient world, you could look and just say, look at the color that they're wearing. That is a rich person. That is an influential person. That is a powerful person. Monarchs always wore these colors. But these colors, just in passing, have a different, a different uh, connotation, a different nuance as well, don't they? Because scarlet is also the color of blood. And we find out that Babylon is drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. 
and you're back to power again. The wealth also symbolizes Babylon's power. But John looks at it and he says, wouldn't it be nice? You ever, you ever what, the Powerball was just over a billion dollars, right? And uh, I've never played the lottery in my whole entire life. But you know, when the Powerball gets to a billion dollars, I still every once in a while sit down and think, what would I do with a billion dollars? Maybe I should buy a Powerball ticket. Right? Because it's, I think of all the ways that it seems like my life would be better or easier. And John looks and he says, he marvels. And so do we in our modern world. Thinking money will solve our problems. I love, the book of Proverbs is so practical. I didn't have a great love for it until uh, about a year ago when I reread it. And as I was going through it, it's like, this book is just so wise. And there's a proverb, I don't remember the reference, but it says this, wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. Did you get that? We're used to thinking, oh, money's this bad thing, right? Jesus, well, Jesus said the love of money, not money, but, but the love of money is the root of every kind of evil. But, but Proverbs says wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. Money really is a shelter, right? Some of you have sheltered with money in the past, maybe quite literally. Your roof got a hole, you used some money, and it got fixed, and now you're sheltered. But the proverb goes on. But the advantage of wisdom is this. It preserves the life of its possessor. We know, we know money doesn't solve all of our problems. But the rapper, was it the notorious B.I.G. like 20 years ago? I know I'm speaking all of your language right now. But he wrote a song, More Money, More Problems. That's actually, you know, the white people way of saying it, because I can't say it the real way. It's like, mo money, mo problems. And I sound ridiculous. But yeah. But it sure seems, sure seems like it does something good for us. John looks at Babylon and he sees her power and he sees her wealth. And then he sees her wisdom. This is a tricky one. Her golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. This is her wisdom. If you're having a hard time following here, I don't blame you, but I think it's really important that we see this. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, book, Mere Christianity, talks about how no one ever does a bad thing so that something bad will happen. People do bad things because they think that by them they will receive something good. Lewis wasn't the first one to observe this. Aristotle said much the same thing, only much earlier and much fancier, and I haven't read it specifically. No one does bad things just so bad things will happen. People do bad things because they believe they'll get something good out of it. Take a look at the culture that we find ourselves in today. And this has been true, by the way, from the very beginning. The world, apart from Jesus Christ, has always made the mistake of calling evil good. And we see it happening all of the time now. We see it happening in our schools, and we see it happening in our politics. We see it happening socially, where there are things that as, as Christians, as people who trust in God's word, his unchanging word, we say, there's no way that that can be good for us. God's been very clear. And yet the world is saying, this is the best thing. How could we have missed this all along? You could think of a hundred examples yourself right now. I know you're already thinking of them. And it's because the world, apart from Jesus Christ, is trying to live according to its own wisdom. 
And when that happens, the golden cup full of abominations and impurities is actually, look at how smart we are. We're finally free to live in a good way where all the idiots before us were messing this up. This is always the sin of the modern age, to say everyone who came before us was dumb. And thankfully, we've come along and figured it all out. There's not a lot of self-awareness in it uh, because the next generation will just say the same thing. Those bozos who were in charge before us sure messed everything up. Fortunately, we're going to fix it all now. Uh, Then their children, of course, it just goes on and on and on. But John looks at it and he says, it is so tempting to compromise and to just live according to the wisdom apart from Jesus Christ because that costs me nothing. Whereas faithfulness to Jesus Christ, God himself tells me may cost me my life. But it's a lie. It's a lie. It's all a lie. This picture of Babylon is a lie if you don't have eyes to see or maybe when you have eyes to see. Uh, It's interesting that Scripture chooses, that John chooses to use here the word porneia in Greek, which is what the uh, the NIV was translating as adultery, what the ESV is translating as sexual immorality. That word porneia, it sounds kind of like our English word for porn, and that's because they are related. Any form of sexual immorality, any form of sexual immorality, the Bible lumps it all under this term, porneia. And John uses it here. Why is this the right metaphor for Babylon's false wisdom? I want to take you to Ezekiel chapter 16. This is in your Old Testament prophets. Ezekiel chapter 16. And God is speaking to the people of Israel And as he speaks to them, he's actually speaking to uh, Jerusalem. And it says this. I'm just going to read a few selections out of the passage. When God, when I, God, passed you, Jerusalem, again and saw you, look, you were at the age for love. You were ready to get married. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. You were vulnerable. And I gave you safety in relationship with me, in marriage to me. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. He says this is the relationship that God wants to have with his people. A relationship as intimate and close and protected and sacred as marriage. But then he goes on. But you trusted in your beauty and you played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and then and on them played the whore. Now, believe it or not, as I've described this to you, this is like the most polite part of Ezekiel 16, and it's pretty graphic. You have become a prostitute, God said to his people when they became unfaithful. You have become a prostitute but only an imitation of the great prostitute of the world that has knowingly married itself 
to the beast and through the beast to the dragon who is Satan and said, all of, our, of your ways will become our ways. All of the things that you want, that'll become what we want as well. And how's that going to work? The, the prostitute has prostituted herself. Babylon, the earthly power of, of politics and economics and religion apart from Jesus Christ, have given themselves over to the dragon, to the beast. And what happens? As we continue on in Revelation 17, it says... I can find exactly uh, my, my verse here. It says that the beast itself hates the prostitute. The beast enthrones Babylon, enthrones the power of the world on itself, and hates it at the same time. And they will destroy Babylon. God doesn't have to come down and go, oh gosh, when's someone going to clean up the mess that, that the world power has become? When's someone going to do that? God says, all I have to do is wait and eventually Satan will do it for me. Because Satan is characterized by hatred. He hates himself. He hates the people around him. He hates his followers. He hates his power. There's nothing left that he doesn't hate. And one day it will all come crashing down. And so when John begins to marvel and say there is something beautiful and attractive about Babylon, when we start to marvel and say, wouldn't it be nicer if we could just walk in lockstep with the rest of the world and stop having to be these separate and different people, stop having to stand for these things that the world hates to hear about, if we could give our loyalty to anyone that we wanted to, if we could just, if we could just go with the flow, wouldn't life be better? Wouldn't life be easier? And God says to us through the angel, why are you marveling? Why are you marveling? Because it's all going to self-destruct. And it's all going to come apart. And God has designed it so that all that is, all that is wicked and bent and corrupt eventually falls apart. I, uh, in Augustine, long, long ago, fourth, fifth century Christian, uh, one of the smartest men who ever lived, and he asked the question once, what is evil? Not, not trying to find an example of evil, but trying to say, what, what at its core is evil? What is the nature of evil? And Augustine said, Evil actually isn't a thing at all. It doesn't have its own existence. Evil is a parasite that lives on what is good to corrupt it. Evil, Augustine said, is a deprivation of the good. It's what happens when goodness becomes less than it should be, than it is in reality. And that's what's actually tempting us 
at the end of the day in Babylon. It, it, Babylon is evil, but it's actually nothing. It's nothing at all. It falls apart. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter, but the advantage of wisdom is this. It preserves the life of its, protect, of its possessor. What will Babylon deliver to you? Nothing. What will adopting the world's sexual ethic give to you? Nothing. What will life apart from Jesus Christ? Because this goes all the way, you know, there's only one sin. You've heard me say this before. There's only one sin. It's only one. It's called by many different names, but it's just the one thing. It's saying, I will be God, not you, God. I will take your kingship. I will take your authority. I will take your power. And from the very beginning, you know what God said? Okie dokie. And, you know, my paraphrase. Okay, that's what you want. I'll give it to you. And how's that working out? Can we ask the people in Israel and in Gaza today? I will have my way. And there are people bleeding on the streets. Can we ask the people who trusted in their wealth? I will buy myself safety and security where moth and rust destroy. Uh, when you're at Yellowstone, uh, was it? Uh, we drove from Yellowstone down to Grand Teton, and on the way we passed through a, a slice of land that was part of, was it the J.P. Morgan Foundation? One of those, you know, ultra-rich guys who built the railroads and started the oil business. What was that? Rockefeller. Thank you. John D. Rockefeller owned a piece of land there. He's one of the richest men the country had ever seen. Where is he? Wisdom is a shelter. His money is the shelter. But the advantage of this, of wisdom is this. It preserves the life of its possessor. And where is John D. Rockefeller? Uh, Maybe the most obvious one of all. I was listening to Tim Keller this week preach on marriage, and he said, uh, you know, when, when we're looking for people to be married to, and I know most of us aren't there anymore, but when you're looking for people to be married to, most of us default to, well, who looks the nicest? That's where we start, right? Who looks, and that's what gets, maybe piques our interest and what gets us, gets us started. And then we get to know people, and, you know, maybe we break up, maybe we stay together. Keller says, we should really turn that around, because here's the truth about your marriage. You're not going to look like that for very long. <laughs> and yet we make choices based on what only lasts for not very long. And that's what Revelation is warning us against. Be wary about trading your future for today because your future is a whole lot longer than your present. Be willing. Find joy in letting go of your future now, or letting go of your present now, and saying, I don't have to have today all of my happiness, all of my joy. I have an eternity for that. God is delivering that to me. It's not even up to me. That's in God's hands. But I can choose to use my present for eternity instead of using my eternity for my present. As we think about what that means for us this morning, uh, I wanted to sing 
the song, I haven't sung this in a long time. I grew up singing it, Make Me a Servant. Uh, Steve, I bet you remember this one. Yeah, and a lot of us too. And as we were uh, hearing Kelly lead us in the liturgy this morning, I was thinking to myself, this is, you know, I, I stopped praying for humility a little while ago. Uh, that's one of those prayers that, as Cal will tell you, you got to be careful about praying it because God will give it to you. But uh, I stopped praying for it for a while ago because I, I thought to myself, you know, I'm a pretty humble guy. I, I don't seek credit. I don't need people constantly, you know, recognizing that I'm, I'm doing a good job or something like that. It's not that it's never nice, but I, I don't need that. I'm a pretty, I think I'm a pretty humble guy. But then I, as I was thinking about this today, I realized, you know what the humility is that I still need? It's the humility to say, you are more deserving of my time and my life than I am. God, you are more deserving of it. Neighbor, you are more deserving of my time and my life and my resources and my good things than I am. I don't know if you caught it. This, uh, we're going to have to move on. But I, in that passage where Jesus was speaking to us at the very beginning, he says, you, the Gentiles like to lord leadership over each other and, and use it for their own benefit. But it won't be so among you. And did you catch how it ended? It ended kind of offensively, if you were listening carefully. Whoever desires to be the greatest among you must be the slave of all. And we can do it if we will trade our present for our eternity.